this week on Writers Inc. I think it's I think it's important that the villain is not a villain for the sake of villainy. You know, it's it's not the, the you know snidely whiplash that is you know, twirling his mustache and thinking evil plots. Uh, your villain should be somebody that is the hero in his own story. You know, he thinks what he's doing is fully justified, uh, and that what he's doing is as right and and uh, you know fair and justified. So you know, I've got to set myself in those when I'm writing the point of view of a villain. I've got to put myself into that perspective. Is you know, why is he doing this? You know, where's this coming from? Where's the justification for why he's doing this? What made him go down this path to become that type of person? So, uh, you know, for the villain to work well, um, they need to they need to, to believe in their own cause. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Hi, it's Christine Daigle. Kevin Tomlinson. Hey, and this is J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writers, Inc. Um, so question, do either of you have any pets? Yes. I do. A very special pet, yeah. Yeah, I have a cat that got sprayed by a skunk last night, so we can talk about that if you want. But. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's always That was fun. fun. Uh, my wife just came home about 10 minutes ago with a box of chickens. What kind oh, of like, chickens? Like live chickens, not the, the, not the kind you get at the drive-thru. I was like about to say, I mean, I came home with a box of chicken <laughs> last night. Uh, yeah. So, so you she, got pet chickens. We, now. We've got pet chickens. So my, my daughter's been after us to get a pet for the longest time. So I, I went out and got a robot dog. I got an Astro because okay. um, we've got this big old house that we just renovated. And like, I've had tons of dogs throughout my life and like dogs will destroy a house. And like just the idea of dog nails on our brand new hardwood floors and stuff, like just yeah. completely freaked me out. So I'm like, robot dog, that works. Um, but the novelty nice. wore off and, and she wanted a, a real pet. So um, my wife and her kind of decided, well, they're going to do chickens. So we got a chicken coop and it, it's been out back. It's all like set up and ready to go. Um, and she, she found a farm that had little baby chicks and they're actually, they're called silky chickens. And if you don't know what these are, you may want to just jump on Google and, and search them out because they're really cool looking. They look, they really look nothing like chickens or they're, they're very odd. Um, but yeah, they're, they're um, brand new hatchlings. I think they're only like a week or two old and they just came home with a box of them. So I can hear them in the other room chirping. That's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, so apparently we have to keep them. We have to keep them in the house for probably till about the middle of March or so until it gets a little bit warmer, um, and then they can go outside to the chicken coop. And then once they're adults, they can stay out there in whatever weather. It doesn't really matter. But as, as babies, they need to and get warm. You've got like a whole ranch farm scenario going, right? Not, not, no, <laughs> no. no? Okay. I mean, we've got a lot of, we've got a lot of property. We've got about two acres, so we've got a, a lot of land. Um, but you know, we're, we're on an Island. Um, just, you know, there's, there's, it used to be a farm. Uh, ironically, it used to be called the old McDonald farm, um, okay. where my house is built. They, they broke up the McDonald farm and they subdivided it and they built it into the five properties that are here now. Um, so yeah, we're kind of, I guess, taking it back. We're, we're starting with chickens and I guess we'll, uh, maybe I'll get a cow or a llama or something. All right. <laughs> that's awesome your daughter must be excited yeah that's i mean where i where i grew up in in uh in texas we had for years you know chickens and cows and pigs and all that stuff so uh, i wouldn't say i grew up on a farm but we all we had all that stuff but 
I'm okay with not having that anymore. That's fine. <laughs> you can I'm, have my cat if you want. She doesn't smell too good right now. <laughs> it is not a good smell. My cat came, she didn't get it too bad, but it was like 11 o'clock at night. So of course the store next to us had like just closed and it's like, what do we have? I didn't have any peroxide. So it was like a baking soda, warm water, Dawn bath. And she smells mostly okay this morning. <laughs> Tomato juice. Tomato I didn't have juice. that either. Oh, Okay. Try vinegar, white vinegar. <laughs> Keep it out of the dog's eyes. I just closed yeah. my bedroom door and I'm like, you're on your own. Like, that I'm work, sorry, that you can cry too. out there all night. You're not coming in here. <laughs> I'll check back with you in six months or so when that's that wears it. off on its own. Um, well, JP is off this week. Um, so is Patrick. Uh, so Kevin, what do we have in the news? Yeah, I'm going to do my best to not butcher this in JP's honor. Uh, so a tentative agreement has been made between Harper Collins and the union uh, HarperCollins and UAW Local 2110 have reached a tentative agreement that will raise minimum salaries for all levels of staff and provide a $1,500 bonus to union members after ratification. So, and I'm I am scanning and glancing through this article. This is a, this is coming out of the uh, Authors Guild and Association of American Literary Agents, uh, were the ones meeting with HarperCollins. Now, I've seen this make the rounds on the news. So it's finally over. Two, at least yeah. two months, right? This was November, I think, when this all started. Yeah. Yeah, two months. It's a tentative agreement. So, yeah, we're, I'm, I'm just happy for both sides that this is coming to an end, and hopefully it'll get back to business as usual. It seems like the kind of thing that, sh that would be in HarperCollins' best interest, really, to, to solve in a very positive way. Um, you know, and I know nobody wants to part with money and this can get really expensive really fast. But, uh, you know, they 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 could get credit here for uh, agreeing to do the right thing. You know, even if they were sort of, you know, their hand was forced a little. <laughs> you know, there's something I'm curious about. Is HarperCollins the only one where the the employees are unionized? Does Random House have this issue and Simon and Schuster? And They're the only one of the big four or five, however you want to look at it, that have a union. Huh. Yeah. And I know folks at Amazon have been trying to, to get a union together. Um, I don't think that's ever actually played out, though, at least maybe I regionally. I think they got it in one region, yeah, but that's yeah. been it so far. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. If they do that, if they have to do that region by region, uh, that's going to be a long slog. And it's going to, that sort of thing would dictate some of the choices Amazon would make about where they put facilities and you know, where they do their hiring. So, yeah, this is, this is one of the, I, I really wish HarperCollins was a public company so we could see the financial impact of this, you know, do a look back on their, their, the quarter and just see how this has actually hurt them. Um, you know, cause agents stopped submitting to them, you know, so all these books that they could have possibly gotten had went to other publishers. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, it's going to be a tricky thing. And I bet you it's going to be at least, you know, probably six months to a year of just stumbling before they can kind of get back into the, the groove of things again. Yeah. So, but good, good to hear it's done. Uh, our next item up, by the way, is one dear, dear to my heart, uh, I have to say. So good on JP for finding this. Uh, draft to digital announces expanded library distribution to Palace Marketplace. Uh, I can tell you this has been an interesting thing going on for, for a couple of months now in, inside of D2D uh, as we've negotiated and built up a relationship uh, with uh, the, I'm going to butcher it. It's DLPA. Don't ask me what it stands for. Something library. I know that. I, I always lose it because it's we 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 live in a world of acronyms. But uh, Palace Marketplace is how they're reaching these libraries and how librarians get to choose these books. It's 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 a good deal for uh, for indie authors. We 
D2D, we love libraries and we've been working for years on, on bulking up our library offering um, and finding new ways to uh, establish those relationships. But, you know, we've got, you know, at this point around half a million titles that are now available to um, a, bro- a much bigger, uh, broader range of libraries now. Sorry, I went off into a little D2D tangent there. Sorry. I, I feel like you need to offer up a disclaimer. <laughs> like, I, I mean, we all know that you that you work for draft yeah. digital I, I don't know that everybody in the audience does. So say you, yeah. I mean, it, it, you're wearing the draft digital yeah. t-shirt. Just in case the you're tuning on. in, uh, if you are tuning in for the first time or if you haven't heard of me before, uh, I'm currently the uh, director of marketing and PR for draft digital I promise I had nothing to do with this article being chosen, but uh, very proud of my uh, of my of my company and uh, what we do for the indie author community. So this is something that we're excited about because we all, everyone at DDD loves libraries. We, we all discovered our love of reading from libraries. I think the first the first published paid thing I ever wrote, I wrote in a library using books, the library books for research and that sort of thing. So big deal to me and to everyone else. Well, you know, libraries are one of those things, like, like you just said, you know, every author, every reader, you know, like we, we spent so many hours in a library. It's like, it's a second home, I think, to yeah. the bulk of us. But I think a lot of authors don't know how to market to a library. You know, they love going there. They don't know quite how to, to get themselves in front of them. Um, I, I bought a, a book a while back, I guess it's about 10 years ago now, it was basically a, a library contact list. And, and I didn't realize, but there are 38,000 libraries in the United States alone yeah. um, that you can actually target. Yeah. Um, you know, as an author like you know as a reader like if you can get your readers to walk into a library and ask for your book most librarians will order that title you know providing it's available through um, baker and taylor or ingram spark you know when one of the providers they won't buy it from amazon yeah. but they will get it from one of the other ones um a lot of the libraries work on a on a system that's that's triggered by you know, like a certain number so like in pittsburgh if they have four copies of your book or they get four requests they'll order another copy automatically uh, or if i think it's not it's if there's four people on the wait list that's what it was then they'll, they'll order another copy so there's yeah. ways to trigger that. Um, for me personally, when I had the fourth monkey coming out, there's a, a letter from the serial killer at the beginning of the book that's that's like handwritten. Um, so I printed out that letter um, and I basically sent a copy to every librarian in the country um, with the tear sheet for the book on the backside. So they opened up this envelope and it was a letter from a serial killer telling them exactly what he was about to do. Um, and then, you know, if they flipped it over, they realized that it was a promotional thing. Um, great idea at the time, but not every librarian flipped it over. There were a few that actually thought that it was a legit letter from a serial killer when they realized that it wasn't my publisher and my editor got some nasty phone calls and emails and things, but, but it caused, you know, they, they there was a lot of orders for that book, you know, so there are ways to, to get out there. Have, have either of you ever promoted to a library? Oh yeah. 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 Uh, and, and fairly successfully, like I, I, and nothing, I never sent them any, uh, any letters, uh, handwritten letters or anything, but, um, you know, I did a one sheet that I sent around to, to libraries, but I started local. And then as it grew, I was able to add to the one sheet, like I'm being distributed in these library systems so that if they, you know, needed some social proof, they could get it. Yeah. And it's so important for indie authors to be in libraries too. I'm, I mean, every uh, book, it's a debate whether you're going to do the KU or you're going to go wide and this new deal with 60% of ebook list price to get into libraries. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Like, I think a lot of indie authors are going to jump at that. Yeah. 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 That's, by the way, a good argument for not 
necessarily uh, going exclusive to to Kindle Unlimited because they the rules uh, that Amazon has in place uh, forbid you from distributing even to libraries. Uh, and I think there's been some talk about them uh, loosening the grip on that a little, uh, specifically for libraries. But they, you know, traditionally they've been pretty hard on it. So yeah, that, that's a good segue into your next news item. I, I see on your list yes. there. Uh, speaking of things, uh, people demanding things of Amazon, over three, uh, over 30,000 signatures have been collected to petition the unfair removal of titles on Amazon. Amazon unfairly removes authors' work from the profitable models of their businesses without accountability or compassion. Uh, have any of you, uh, either of you ever had to deal with Amazon pulling a book or giving you some kind of strike? I have not, but I've been in conversations where this has happened to people and it's, you know, it, it's nasty. Like they'll have, um, pirates basically who are just pulling the book and putting up copies and Amazon will just take them both down, you know, yep. and let the authors sort, sort it out and it can take a long time. So make sure you have your copyright. That's kind of the fastest way to get that cleared up. Yeah. I imagine it gets trickier if you're using a pen name, right? Like how do you right. prove that it's you if it's a, a pen name? Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, with my pen name, I have the, the copyright is in the author name and also my legal name. So I have both of it. So you can just send that and say, here's the copyright. It's in my legal name. It's got the author name on it. And that should clear it up pretty fast. Yeah. One of the things that people have uh, pointed out about this, and I think this is on point, um, is that essentially what, what ends up happening is the, the author ends up being punished for uh, the, the piracy. Because, you know, Amazon's policies are, you know, if there's any sort of dispute, if there's any, if they find some, if you're in KU and they find the book elsewhere, their policy is um, just treated as if you cheated and then they, they cut you off. And then it's up to you to have to dispute it, prove it, get the book taken down. Um, so in effect, it, 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 it does take a shot at the author if Amazon finds that someone else pirated the book. And there's very little recourse. Like, it's very difficult to get Amazon to, uh, to well to hear you uh, any at all, but also to deal with the problem. And I I did actually have a uh, couple of issues. I've had issues where my book got flagged or taken down uh, because someone uh, the book I had a book that when it was in Ku, someone downloaded the, the you know their free copy and then they um, pirated that and uh, they did the the most bizarre thing. They put the book back on Amazon back in KU and they took the exact cover and they shrunk it down and put it on a like green border. And then even though my name was still on it, they put their name at the bottom of the book as the, as the author. Uh, and fortunately for me, it was really easy to get that one disputed. Cause all I had to do is point it, point out that it says in the copyright that it's my book. Uh, so they, they took it down, but they, their first uh, response to that was to say, our policy is you're going to have to deal with it. We have to pull the book and you have to get a letter from this person saying that they don't own the book. So, wow. So are, how are you supposed to do that? Are you the one who found it or did somebody point it out to you or did someone Amazon sent it? me? No. Yeah. I had someone send me, they said their book had been caught up by the same person. And so they, they reached out and said, Hey, just so you're aware, this person has done this with your books, a couple of your books. And so I was able to track that down. Otherwise I never, I never got an alert. Uh, before that, um, uh, on that book, on the, on the, the second one, I got flagged and they, they actually took it down. This is a whole mess. I mean, it was a big mess. So yeah, 
the crazy part about that, if you think about this, like forensically looking at it, you know, you've got how many people out there possibly doing this, you know, these, these book pirates, that means that there, mm-hmm. you know, there's a handful of people probably worldwide that are actually doing it, um, that all these titles are coming from the same IP addresses or the same Mac address. Right. Like there's ways to track it back that, you know, I'm sure Amazon is privy to, um, and should be able to see. Um, it's, it's surprising to me that, they, that it happens that, and, and it is as difficult as it, as it is, but I have heard some, some nasty horror stories of authors trying to get that stuff back. And I, I brought up the pen names because that was a big part of one of the, the ones I heard about. Like he, this, this person yeah. literally had no way to prove that that was relating them, you know, because it was just a name they made up. Yeah. Crazy. I guess that could be an argument for getting like a DBA or, or at, le- at least a DBA for your um, pen names. Yeah, I'm actually I'm working on getting an attorney to come on the air just to talk about this sort of thing, because it, it impacts a lot of stuff beyond this um, copyright being the, the most important. Um, yeah. you know, and a lot of authors nowadays are actually copywriting their books in the names of trusts, you know, because as long as that trust is alive, yeah. then the copyright is held alive. Um, and the only reason I even know anything about that is after working on the, the prequel to Dracula, you know, like Bram Stoker and Dracula, that's in public domain. And like it, if it had been handled yeah. properly, it wouldn't be today. They, you know, if it had been in a trust at the time or before, you know, that expired, it, it could have been salvaged and the family could still own that. But, um, you know, as of today, it's in public domain. So, wow, crazy problems. Yes, very crazy. The kind of problems that could potentially be a good thriller novel. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of thriller novels. <laughs> I'll let you write that one. This episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsor, Later Press. Later Press is a platform built to help authors declare independence. It lets authors create digital books and sell them directly to readers through a branded website. Later Press is free to publish on and doesn't take any commission on direct sales. It's one of the most effective ways readers can directly support authors they love. Get started today at LaterPress.com. So, J.D., who's up this week? Uh, this week, we've got James Rollins. He's the number one New York Times bestseller of over 40 novels. His latest book is called The Cradle of Ice, which just released. Here he is, James Rollins. Hello, and thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me back on. It's good, it's good to speak to you again. We spoke under different circumstances, so it's, uh, it's nice to be speaking with you with, with Friar Inc. Yeah, back in 2019, you and I had a chat on the Wordslinger podcast, uh, my old show. So I want to jump right in. There's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. Um, but we are, of course, here primarily to talk first about your new book, The Cradle of Ice, which is the second book in your Moonfall series. And this is um, correct. back in 2019, Jim, you and I talked about, uh, you actually mentioned at that time that you were thinking about or possibly even working on already an, a fantasy series, because uh, you're best known for your thrillers, Sigma series, which is one I'm a big fan of. Uh, what what was it that caused you to decide you wanted to do fantasy? Well, it's again, you were not the first one to ask that question. Uh, of course. No. <laughs> I got, I mean, it was the, the most common email question after that. Like, what are you doing, Jim? Uh, well, let me explain. Uh, you know, I, I've written two books a year since the beginning of my career. So I'm on my 47th book. I've been writing now for just a little over 20 years. So roughly about two books every year. Um, and I've always done like my thriller whether it's a Sigma uh, Force thriller or maybe a standalone every now and again. But then I'll do something different for the other path, for the other book, just to, you know, extend my writerly legs a little bit uh, to try something different. Um, you know, I've done 
collaborative work with, with Grant Blackwood, where I spun Tucker Kane and his uh, war dog, I mean, Tucker Wayne and his war dog Kane off into their own series. I worked on this uh, sort of gothic vampire type of story with Rebecca Cantrell. It was a trilogy. I've done a middle school series uh, featuring Jake Ransom. Um, so I always been just sort of exploring other genres. But to be honest with you, that's it's not particularly new to me. Uh, the first decade of my career, I was actually writing under two different pen names. I was writing uh, my thrillers under James Rollins. Uh, but at the same time that I sold my first thriller, uh, within a week of selling my first thriller, which had been rejected by 49 different agents. It was a 50th agent that saw something in that work. It says, hey, I think I can sell this. And I thought, well, I've got 48 other agents that said it's a piece of crap. So, you know, good luck. But during that, it takes a while to get 49 different rejections. It doesn't all come at once, thank goodness. Uh, right. And so during that time, I was, I thought, well, maybe I'm not a thriller writer. Maybe I should jump to another, you know, genre I love to read, which is fantasy. Then began working in a fantasy. And I was mostly almost on that book when I got that call from an agent saying, I think I can sell this. And then she, uh, lo and behold, did succeed in selling it. And at the same time, the within a week of selling the first thriller, the fantasy also sold to a different publishing house. And so within one week, I went from unpublished to suddenly having two different publishers, two different genres. They both said, we hate your real last name, make up some pen names. So Rollins is not my real last name. If you look at the uh, the copyright page of any of my novels, you'll see a long Polish name. That's the real name. It's hard to pronounce. It's hard to spell. Oh, so you're open with it. I didn't think you were open with that. I thought you, I thought you were nah, keeping it's, that it's a hard. It's, no, it's poorly kept secret. Most people know, you know. Yeah. So it's, uh, the Rollins actually came because I had the University of Missouri Veterinary Cl Cl uh, College where I went to school was on Rollins Avenue. So I borrowed that. My uh, pen name for the fantasy was James Clemens. So I was borrowing Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain's unused real name for my fantasy name. So basically both calls out to my Missouri roots. Um, and so for the first decade, I was uh, running a fantasy year and a thriller year. And so that's always been, a, you know, again, eventually I sort of, uh, James Clemens sort of dissolved a little bit. James Rollins came to the forefront. Uh, but I, I always loved reading fantasy. I continue to read fantasy. I had this idea for uh, setting a fantasy on, it actually didn't start out as a, a fantasy. I, I thought it was going to be a thriller or maybe a science fiction you know, novel. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to set a story on a tidally locked planet. And what that means is that's a planet that uh, circles the sun with one side always facing the sun. So it's mm -hmm. basically, you know, blasted, it's sun blasted, it's a desert, it's arid. And the other side is an internal, internally in darkness, it's frozen, it's covered in ice. And because uh, I read an article in Scientific America about tidally locked planets, I was really fascinated by that. And it got me wondering, being the, you know, I've always got my antenna up for that next idea. And I think, you know, is can there be, can life exist on in a planet of that extreme where one side's frozen and one side's, you know, an arid, hot, uh, molten mass. And um, so I talked to an astrophysicist who said, you know, can life exist on a tidally locked planet? He said, well, sure, because most likely there's a temperate band between those two extremes. And because of the currents, the way the weather, probably the way the winds move and circulation that occurs, there probably is a temperate band between those two extremes. And uh, so life could exist on that planet. So that's pretty cool. But then, of course, I got thinking about it. I thought, well, what would life look like on that? Now, you know, being have a veterinary background, uh, the background in evolution biology, I began thinking, you know, what would li what life might look like on that planet? And then I talked to some xenobiologists, you know, these are the people that study life in extremes and said, you know, this is what I think would happen. What do you think would happen uh, in regards to the evolution and pathway of life on this planet? And they gave me some hints. And uh, so they've just been snowballing, you know, for about almost seven, eight years. I just working this in the background, you know, just you know, I, 
didn't know what I was going to do with it. Was going to be a science fiction novel, and it's going to be maybe a modern day thriller where, for some reason, the Earth stops spinning. So, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with it. But then I had the idea of, of returning to my roots, going back and, and turning this planet into a fantasy landscape, and you know, building uh, my own bestiary of creatures living on this planet, and setting up the uh, the whole plot for the story. And uh, being a snowball, and after a while, it kept you know the file folder that had that information got fatter and fatter and fatter. And eventually I thought, well, I've kept dwelling on to the point where it's interfering with my other writing. I thought yeah. well, if I'm the only way to get this out of my head, I got to put it on paper. So I uh, jumped in and thought, well, I'm just going to return to my roots of doing the thriller and the fantasy. So my next, the Sigma thriller is coming out in, uh, in the summer. It's uh, tides of fire. It's sort of a big disaster movie in novel format. Um, Most of those are most of the Sigma books are I've noticed. Yeah, exactly. They are. I try to. I, my, my goal is pretty much to destroy every world heritage site on the planet. <laughs> well, there's a goal. Uh, that's the see, that's the there's like this slim difference between uh, thriller novelists and supervillains, basically. <laughs> there is. I mean, sometimes <laughs> when I'm writing my villain standpoint, I was like, you know, he's right. You know what he's doing. I'm almost agreeing with him you know I, I think what he's doing is you know, there's some, some justification for what he's accomplishing here yeah uh, so yeah there's a certain amount of uh, psychosis that occurs with right that's a that's a very good thing to bring up to do i mean because i've i've looked i've seen you know and especially like in the marvel movies there's this whole thread of you know the super villain uh is is kind of right and maybe their methods are abhorrent but they're their philosophy is kind of right. Now, do you think that's a critical part of a villain? I think it's. I think it's important that the villain is not a villain for the sake of villainy. Yeah, you know, it's it's not the, the you know snidely whiplash that is you know, twirling his mustache and thinking evil plots. Uh, your villain should be somebody that is the hero in his own story. You know, he thinks what he's doing is fully justified, uh, and that what he's doing is as right and and uh, you know fair and justified. So. You know, I've got to set myself in those when I'm writing the point of view of a villain. I've got to put myself into that perspective is, you know, why is he doing this? You know, where is this coming from? Where is the justification for why he's doing this? What made him go down this path to become that type of person? So, uh, you know, for the villain to work well, um, they need to they need to, to believe in their own cause. Yeah, they're they're the protagonist of their own story, right? The, the hero exactly. of their own story. So uh, you mentioned research. You mentioned a, an ever-growing uh, Manila folder. Uh, what, how do you handle research <laughs> exactly. for these books, especially fantasy? Like, how, what's the process of research for you? Again, some people ask, do you have do you hire somebody to do your research? And no, it's all me because uh, yeah. I don't have a tendency. I work from a pretty loose outline, uh, yeah. both the thrillers and the fantasy. You know, I know where I know, like I know where this this four book arc of this, this fantasy series is going to end. I know exactly what's going to happen. Um, I know some of the uh, tent poles that are going to hold up this series. Uh, same with my Sigma novels. I know the beginning, I know the end, I know the tent poles. But I don't necessarily know A connects to B connects to C. Uh, to me, uh, the joy of writing is the discovery between those tent poles and seeing where the story goes, where the characters go, how they change. Sometimes I can't make the motivation even sometimes make sense to get to a tent pole. So somebody has to change the tent pole. But what I also discover is, is when I'm doing my research is that oftentimes I'm looking for, you know, fact A. Uh, and so I go onto you know, the internet or call some people up or talk to a scientist and try to get fact A. And the, in the path of trying to discover fact A, I, I discover something far more intriguing that uh, I would never have thought of. And so if I had just hired somebody and said, hey, get me this information on fact A, they would just come back with the information of fact A. But because I went my own path, I found an entirely new, exciting way to tell a story or to diverge the story. Um, 
And when it comes to fantasy, again, for a title lock plan, I want to make this as authentic as possible. I, you know, I talk to the astrobiologists, astrophysicists, xenobiologists, leading to my own background to make sure that the, you know, the creatures that were there felt like they they belonged there. They weren't, they weren't yeah. just uh, you know popping a dragon into a, to a mountain because that's where dragons live. Now I, I wanted whatever creatures you're going to encounter uh, to be, feel authentic. And yeah. in the, both the first volume and the second volume, I have um, biological sketches, you know, almost like you look like, a, like an old uh, mid, you know, mid century, mid century, uh, turn of the century, you know, old scientific texts where they have, you know, these drawings of, you know, yeah. positions of animals. And, and so I want to add that sense of verisimilitude by incorporating some of these, uh, you know, there's about a dozen different drawings of these of the various creatures that appear in the novel to add that level of, of, of feeling like you're reading a, 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 you know, a scientific text based on, on this strange world. Yeah. And that's, in, you've included those sketches in, in the actual books. Oh yeah. They're in the actual books themselves. Now, now trust yeah. me, I did not draw them. No, no, I, 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 I hire. There, there's a graphic artist. A graphic artist called uh, uh, Dana Fiddler, brilliant. And I love consulting with her because she's also a biologist. Oh, okay. so you know, I will say this is the creature I'm putting into this world. This is the way I'm describing it in the novel. And then she, you know, when it comes to what's described in the novel, when you're fleshing out a character, there's a lot of details that just aren't in the description. So she'll ask me, well, what does this tail look like? And and how does it move? And and what are the you know how is these claws working? If they're if they're an arboreal species, you know I think the claws should be more cooked here. So she would you know so back and forth with her. We made some alterations in the creatures because she was leaning on her biological background and working at the anatomy, the physiology of these creatures that would make sense. You you had a uh, your book sixth sixth extinction had a lot of. That sort of thing that you had creatures in there that were un, under the ice in the Antarctic that uh, felt very alien to us is same same sort of process. Pretty much. Yep. You know, again, yeah. it's you know just trying to figure out how environmentally and how evolutionarily that biosphere might have, uh, you know, originated. You know, if there's yeah. what's the, what's the apex predator for this environment? What's the what's the the, the wolf or the uh, or the. Uh, there's a shark in this world, you know, and how does that, you know, how does these, this food change, you know, develop on the, in this world? So I had you know, to incorporate all that to account. Yeah. So I like, um, I like that this kind of started almost as a sci-fi uh, environment. I mean, the idea of the tidal locked planet, right. Um, what made you decide shift? What you probably already answered this actually <laughs> in what you were saying, but um, uh, what was it? What was the key thing that made you decide? No, this is a fantasy story. <laughs> I, I pitched two ideas of that. I go, Here's a title like Planet Russ. That's my editor's name. My, my no, editor. I'm sorry, it was my agent, not my editor. Oh, okay. My agent Russ. And I said, you know, I have this idea for setting a, a story and have a title like Planet, and I have two ways of going. You know, I could set a, a modern day story. Or somebody develops a device that begins to slow the planet down and there's catastrophe results, which sounds very much like a Sigma novel or you know, possibly a standalone type of thriller. Or I can you know, go into far into millennia, millennia, millennia to the future where this planet's been frozen for a long period of time or not frozen, but it's just, you know, stuck tightly locked for a long, long period of time and life change involved to fit the new niches that developed. And I would set that as a fantasy. And he goes... Do the fantasy. So that's what I did. So if you told me to do the thriller, it would not exist. 
And that, yeah, I was going to ask you like <laughs> the, you know, what was, did you, I was originally going to ask you if you had trouble selling the concept. I, by now you're a known commodity. People are going to take a gamble on you, but uh, I always wonder sure. when authors switch genres or, or experiment in a genre, like how challenging is it to get uh, the publishers interested? I'm not going to deny that there wasn't obstacles. There wasn't you know a little bit of convincing yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I had all Bible worked out with the, some of the, the drawings and I laid it out as, as thoroughly as I can to try to, to whet the appetite for that publisher. Okay. And, and uh, luckily there were multiple publishers that were interested in the series. So yay. Uh, yeah. But again, because I've, especially HarperCollins, who I've been with at the beginning, I love HarperCollins. I've been with the same editor for the, the entire length of my career with HarperCollins, which is a, just doesn't happen in the, in the publishing world. You generally notoriously switch editors fairly frequently, but I've been with, uh, yeah. Alyssa was the one that bought my first thriller, the one that was rejected by 49 different agents. She was the one that picked it up out of the, out of the pile and said, I, I, I want this. Uh, yeah. and then she's the one that just edited tides of fire. that's coming out this summer. Uh, so she's been there from the beginning of my career. Um, and so they've sort of used to me wandering off the path a little bit into other genres. Uh, so it's not particularly surprising. I'm sure there's, there's some uh, board, somewhere in a boardroom, somebody's going, oh God, what is Jim doing? Uh, but uh, they support me, so I can't complain. I remember seeing an interview with, I think it was Matt Damon, who's, you know, they asked him like, why would you make a film like, this wasn't the film, but like, why would you make Goodwill Hunting when you could make The Martian? Those are not the films that he was asked about, but, uh, you know, and he, he says, you know, I make the Martian so that I've got the money to go make, you know, a goodwill hunting or something. Uh, it seems exactly. like the same kind of thing. Yeah. Totally the same thing. Is the, uh, is the writing process for a fantasy book very different from, uh, from writing thrillers? Totally different. That's really? what I liked actually in my early in my career was having the two different genres because they're and one one year I tried to write a fantasy and a thriller the same year. It's when I wrote the the my uh the, sort of the first prequel to the Sigma novel, Sandstorm. Um yeah. I tried writing the fantasy and the thriller at the same time. And it was like stripping gears in my head, uh, just because you had the staccato pace sort of thriller going on, and then you get the more prose-rich world building fantasy they're just at two different speeds yeah and yeah. it was hard just trying to get my mind you know switched into that gear but what i found is i like being able to write that staccato paced thriller and then switching over to something that feels very different feels very fresh i'm always you know i always hear this you know whether i'm on a book tour or even before i was ever published you know oh i've been reading this writer for a long period of time this author for a long period of time and now it feels just like he's going through the motions mm -hmm. uh, he's just uh you know, spinning his wheels, so to speak. And I, I am fearful of anybody saying that about me. Yeah. Uh, so one of the ways I, I try to keep myself fresh is by, by you know, if I wrote a staccato paced thriller after a staccato paced thriller after a staccato paced thriller, I fear I might get burnt out. I might, yeah. you know, start to, to spin those wheels. But by having every year, forcing myself into this entirely different type of genre, whether it's a middle school book, whether it's a fantasy novel, it's, it's got, that sort of romantic fantasy type of uh, vampiric type of story. Um, when I get back to that thriller, I'm ready to get back to that thriller. I'm anxious to get back to those characters again yeah. versus going, Oh my God, I have to write another novel with those characters again. So to me, it just helps me feel fresh. I like the challenge of jumping to something different so that when I return to the, the thriller, I'm ready to return to that thriller. Yeah. 
Do you find you miss those characters when you're away for a while? I do, definitely. I mean, especially especially when I'm, you know, this is the problem. It's the one question I often got asked when I was, again, it was very poorly kept secret that James Clemens and James Rollins were the same person. Yeah. Uh, so I'd often get asked, you know, well, which do you like writing better? Do you prefer to write the thriller or do you prefer to write the fantasy? And my answer was, it's whatever I'm not writing is what I prefer to write. <laughs> is that I seem like whenever I'm in the fantasy, you know, I, I need... You know, I need that Uzi or I, I need that telephone or the airplane uh, right. to get those characters from point A to point B or to get them out of, you know, out of a jam. Yet when I'm writing a thriller, I'm thinking, gosh, you know, I need a magic wand to get Gray and company yeah. out of this jam. I have no idea how to get them out of this corner I just painted them into. <laughs> so yeah. uh, there, there's pros and cons to both. And it seems like whenever you're writing, the cons seem very prevalent while you're actually physically writing that novel. I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, the Sigma novel where they have some sort of magic wand that gets them out of trouble. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it may happen at some point. Hey, Elves with Uzis, I think, would be fun. Uh, that would be a lot of fun. You mentioned earlier that you were, you know, you were working, you ended up working on the two different genres at the same time. I mean, is that typical for you? Do you usually write more than one book at a time? No, never. Mm. That was That was a learning experience. Uh, even if that I'm was writing, the end of it, <laughs> some years I do write. That was the end of it. Nope. I, I, and that's just the way my mindset. I've heard other authors that are able to jump between novels. I cannot, you know, I, I've got to go. People go, when you write your novels, do you jump between scenes? Like you go, oh, I want to write the scene and then come back and fill in the gap. I've got to write from point A, you know, to point Z. I, you know, it's got to be orderly. I, I don't understand how writers can jump into you know, to point F when they haven't got there yet. Um, and that's, I remember when I took the SAT, you know, you always get that instruction uh, when you're beginning any type of test, you know, if you have a problem with a question, skip it and come back to it later. Mm -hmm. I cannot do that. I, I, I will either. stay on that question until I have an answer. <laughs> right. Time's ticking by. I don't care. I got to answer this question. That's so right. To me, it's yeah. got to be, you know, so me, it's, it comes with novel writing the same way. It's it's also, you know, I'm so immersed in the story. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm living that story. It's running like a movie in my head. Uh, I think about it constantly. It wasn't just what I'm writing today. It's, it's always in the back of my mind. I'm always thinking yeah. of, you know, how things are going to change or what did, what did I write yesterday and how am I going to change things tomorrow? And and I've got to fully live in that world while I'm, while I'm writing the novel to try to mm -hmm. have two of those things going on in my head at the same time. Like I said, I tried it once does not work so do you do you read other fiction while you're writing totally i i'm okay. still an avid reader i don't i still understand writers that say oh i don't have time to read i write because i love to read when you're reading you're going to see how a, an author ha handles that problem and it begins to sort of untie that knot that formed in your head during your writing day yeah. and so you know i i constantly when i'm reading i will jot down cool phrases i will see an author just the way a paragraph structure like i didn't know you could do that with a paragraph yeah i'm going to do that so i add, just add that to my you know my little toolbox of, of things i can do to own my writing so the reason i finally got published i think was just writing and reading every day is that my prose got became stronger and even mm -hmm. today i still do that i still i still love to read i like to see what other authors are doing i like to hear you know intriguing things they're doing with prose, intriguing stories they're doing with uh, character development or plot. Um, and I think, especially for genre writing, you have to read deeply in the genre even before you start writing in that genre. But I think you also yeah. need to be uh, current. Um, is that if, you know, what the genre was like 20 years ago when I first started writing fantasy is not the genre that is fantasy today. So if I wasn't reading concurrently through there, I'd be writing stuff that felt, you know, 20 years old versus something that feels current and, and of this time. 
So, uh, you know, it's important, I think, that if you're going to write in a genre, you need to, you need to keep you know, your finger on that pulse or else you're going to lose it. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's I think that's an author trait. We love story and we want as much of it as we can cram in our brains at one time as possible. Exactly. <laughs> Is there ever anything uh, like have you ever started a book and something drew you away from it? You decided to stop writing that book? Walked away from it? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. I will start writing something and and I just know it's not working. Yeah. And so often it's that other thing. And some, it's another project a lot of times I'm just sort of dabbling with. Yeah. And uh, many of them end up on the cutting room floor. It, it takes that moment of, uh, ah, that aha moment where you go, this is this is the story. That, this is the one I want to write. Of all these yeah. you know options I had for that other story, this is the one I'm going to write. And pretty much the other ones, once they've been negated, I just very, very seldom will take that and move that to the next year. Once I've negated it, it's just gone. I will, I'll, by the time I'm ready to do that next book next year, I have a whole nother list of, of ideas for what I want to do for that second book. There's a lot of stuff on the cutting floor. So you do, you occasionally pull that stuff back out. Have you, are there any of your novels that started as some scrap of discarded uh, verbiage that you, you came back to? occasionally most of the ideas there there they, they build like a through that snowball effect where you get the idea and it begins to roll a little bit and it gets more and more mm-hmm. added to it and once it starts a certain level of, of momentum and, and size and weight and depth that i feel like there's a story there but oftentimes like i said some of those ideas i think they're going to be a perfect snowballing effect but they, they never snowball into anything yeah. but what will happen and this happens a lot is that these little ideas that i thought were going to be a cool novel I will use them in short fiction. I find out that they, okay, they, they don't, this does not really support a full novel, but it'd be a really cool short story. Yeah. What's the timeline for you when you start a book, like start to finish? What, what does it typically take you to do that? Well, it takes me, and I'm pretty regimented. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's because I, when I first started to write, I had my veterinary clinic going and I was I had very narrow cracks in time in which to write. So I had to be fairly structured with it. And I still somewhat am. Maybe that's just the scientific background of me. But I allow myself a 90 days of research on a novel. And that's not just research, but also it's the, it's where I put that skeletal plot together during that yeah. 90 days too. Uh, but the 91st day, I, I, I've got to start writing something. Otherwise, I will just keep researching and researching and researching and realize there's not anything happening. Um, and there's overlap. So while I'm researching one novel... I am writing the other. I have no problem with researching another novel while writing writing something currently. I just don't want to write both at the same time. Oh, that's interesting. So, so I will. I will. Like right now, I I, I finished um, uh, Tides of Fire, uh, which is the book coming out in August now. But uh, that's, at that point, I was already doing the structure for the third book in the fantasy series. So by the time I'm done that thriller, I pretty much have everything ready to go. So I don't have too much loss. Maybe I'll take a week or two off between the two books just to get my head into that new space. And then I'm ready to jump right in because I have all the things set. Now, while I'm writing this this uh, third fantasy novel, which I'm almost done with, um, I'm also working on now the uh, the story, which will be my 2024 Sigma novel. So there's a little overlap. So basically, it's, it's 90 days of re- to get back to your question, 90 days of research, six months of writing, and then you know about a month or you know back and forth with the editor and getting things polished up. A, a month that's that seems speedy for for back and forth with the editor. When you have the same editor for you know 20 plus years, right? You know, we have learned a shorthand with each other. I know what she expects, so I give her that. Uh, yeah. uh, 
the first novel I gave her, the one that was rejected by 49 different agents, um, there was a long edit letter from the editor on that one. Uh, Subterranean deals with a group of characters that are dropped two miles underneath the earth. I threw mm-hmm. in some monsters and shook. That was the plot. Okay. And they didn't, the characters didn't get down that hole until page like 125. The time they finally got down that hole because all the pre story and getting the characters developed and getting yeah. all the plot. She says, No, Jim, you got to get those characters down that hole by page 50. You need to chop out 75 pages of your front, front part of your novel, which again seemed impossible to me. Like every word's, you know, golden. How could I possibly take anything worse? So you know, I said, <laughs> Look, listen, I've got them down the hole by page 100. She said, I said 50. Trim, trim, trim. Look, they're down the hole by page 80. I said 50. Well, then I changed margins and font size and, you know, tried to cheat that way. <laughs> Look, it's 65. <laughs> and I said, well, it's got page 50. So now, now if I, if characters are going down a hole, I know Liz is going to want them down that hole by page 50. So I, before I give it to her, I had the whole characters down the hole by page 50. So uh, we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, and sure. uh, I've all, uh, just like last time, I really enjoyed t- chatting with you, but I do have one final question for you. Sure. Uh, and that is if you had to tell a writer what rule to always break what's the rule you would tell them to break what rule to tell them to break um out of all the writing advice you've ever had you've ever been given it's an attic and this is really not a very exciting answer to this question which i had a more brilliant answer is that <laughs> for some reason editors don't like prologues to stories mm-hmm. and i have prologues on every single my stories whether it's you know all my sleeper novels have like a a historical part that takes place, you know, decades, centuries before the, the active events. My my fantasy is both present and back a dec- two decades ago to designate there there is sort of a uh, introductory uh, sort of character that that talks a little bit about the story. So uh, people say don't write prologues, but I am pro prologue. So uh, in in that chat, you know, James talked talked to me about his research. How do you, how do you guys handle your uh, research for your books? I, I, I basically research as I'm going. Um, you know, it was funny. I was getting all twitchy when I was listening to this because one of the reasons I write fiction is because I don't want to have to research, you know, like I came out of the, the nonfiction world, having to interview people and actually make sure that facts were real and, and backed up by something legit. Um, you know, with fiction, I like to think you don't have to do that. Um, what I was actually thinking about, and I don't know if, if you guys have seen this yet, but I, I pulled a TikTok video. Um, and it's a girl who basically says, I'm going to use chat GPT to write a fantasy novel. So she goes out on the web and she goes to a website that generates title or story ideas for fantasy novels. And she grabs a paragraph that this, you know, this website generates for her. And then she takes that back to chat uh, GPT, throws it in there, you know, gets her blurb, gets her chapters, you know, and, and basically starts expanding it. Um, and the only thing that really slowed her down is she wanted to write a 5,000 word novel, you know, which obviously isn't long enough, but the the system itself capped her and wouldn't allow her to, to go that far. Um, but, you know, that's obviously a human jumping in there and saying, hey, we're going to put a limit on this of X number of words. Words. Um, but, you know, she got to that point and like her goal was to basically write a novel without having to research. And she zeroed in on fantasy because she felt that, you know, everything is made up. The people are made up. The places are made up. Monsters are made up. So I don't have to research anything. And then I'm listening to, to you know, James over here talk about it. And he's like, he's researching everything. Yeah. His ever expanding manila folder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, you I know, was like, like <laughs> 90 days of research. And plotting while he's writing another novel. And I, I was just kind of envious of that because I'm like, I don't know if I could do that. I research as I go along too because I'm like, I just kind of yeah. grab it when I need it. But do you do that? Do you imagine your next novel I, while you're working on the current no. one? No. 
I don't, uh, because I, while I'm in a book, I'm in that book. And, it, it, but the, in terms of research though, like I'm always researching, like it, it's never, it's just an automatic, it's in, it's an instinctual thing for me now, but you know, every, every thriller novel I ever wrote uh, started with, every book starts with the title for me, by the way. So I, I come up with the title first and then I, I figure out what the story is from that. And it's just my quirk. But the, the research part of it is, is stuff that's been in, you know, my brain and in my files, uh, for years, you know, I come across some interesting article or uh, video on YouTube or uh, an old episode of that's incredible or something, you know, and it's, it, that's the launch point. And then I'll do some quick research to kind of sh make sure I know and understand what it is I'm, uh, I'm talking about and fill in some gaps maybe in my knowledge. But yeah, for the most part, I don't, I don't spend a ton of time researching because like, like JD, like it's, it's fiction. So uh, I will a lot of times just start with something and then I'll veer off into uh, something completely fictional. What's really been interesting is how often people have have contacted me to say, I read your book and I went and looked this up and I was so fascinated to find out more about that thing you wrote about that I completely made up. So I think, uh, you know, fact can imitate fiction pretty, pretty often. <laughs> I've been able to, um, I, I've tried writing multiple books at the same time and I, I can't do it either. Like I can't write, I, I can't be in the writing process with two different books. Um, what I'm doing right now is I, I'm writing my book in the, in the mornings. Um, and then after that, I'm in the rest of the day, I'm spending on the stuff I'm working on with co-authors. Um, I've got, I think eight different titles right now that are in the works there in various stages. Um, but for, I, I can make that distinction. Like I can make that separation. Um, what I tried doing in the past was writing one book in the morning and writing another other book in the afternoon and things like that. Um, that just doesn't work for me. Um, partly because, you know, I go on this run every day to try and figure out what I'm going to write about the next day. And like, you know, my brain was just too cluttered up with too many different storylines. Um, so yeah, so mm -hmm. I couldn't do that, but re researching another novel while I'm writing one, like as long as I structure the day, the day properly, I can, I can do that. I feel like I'm not organized enough to be able to research ahead of time. I just got to do it as I go. But, um, one thing I'm always curious about is when he was talking about talking to experts. Like, how do you find your experts? Like, he was like, oh, I found a xenobiologist. How do you find a xenobiologist? <laughs> do you just like cold, <laughs> cold call or what? I don't know. That's what I've done in the past is I Google and I call or, or I email. Um, I've had I've had experts uh, in all kinds of fields who they're usually pretty excited about um, about talking to you. You know, I, and I do I do informational interviews, which I, I that actually get recorded. I, I could. For a long time, I'll be honest with you, uh, the Wordslinger podcast, when I was still doing that, was effectively me doing research and finding experts. And I would actually use the, uh, the interviews for episodes, which they knew. I mean, they, I didn't cheat or anything. But yeah, that, podcasts uh, are a great resource, by the way, for uh, having an excuse to talk to experts. <laughs> Yeah, most organizations and big companies have somebody on staff to deal with this sort of thing. You know, like if you need a, information on the CIA, like they've got a liaison, you know, that, that deals with writers in Hollywood and, yeah. and that Same sort of thing. FBI. Yeah. Um, and, and I've, I've cold emailed people before too, just like Kevin was mentioning, if I need something in particular, I'll shoot an email to them. And I, I, I've never had somebody get back to me and like not want to do it. They always seem to be pretty excited about it. Um, so yes. What about, um, do you guys, do you read fiction like while you're writing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, I, I definitely do. And I know plenty of authors that say that they can't or authors that say I can't read the same genre that I'm writing yeah. in. Um, the only hang up I've honestly had is if I'm writing in present tense, I can't read stuff that's in past tense or, or vice versa because it starts creeping huh. into my, my writing. Uh, but beyond that, it doesn't really impact me. Do you, you, so you haven't had the experience of it coloring your your voice or anything when you write? No. no. I have noticed that that can happen, but I, I have a pretty strong voice. Like I... I I tend to, even when I catch myself lapsing into imitating an author uh, that I'm currently reading, uh, when when by the time I go back and do the rewrite, uh, it's gone. Like I, I work it out after the fact. So I, I think it happens a lot to people when they're first starting off because they, they just yeah. basically try to imitate their favorite writers or their favorite TV yeah. show or, or whatever. I mean, for me at this point, it's just, it just stimulates me, you know? So if I'm writing a, a psychological thriller, I try to read tons of psychological thrillers. I watch all the shows and movies I can find, um, just because it gets my brain along thinking along those same lines. And that doesn't mean I'm going to steal a twist from something I'm reading or seeing, but it gets me thinking along the same lines to, to create my own twists. Yeah, yeah. Same. It's like I, the voice is, not affecting me. I'm not going to mimic someone else's voice, but it might be something that like, oh, that's a cool idea. And it might, you know, make my own cool idea that's a spin off of that or get some other juices going. But yeah, no, it doesn't bother me. I too will have a secret message in a Da Vinci painting. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not that one, but yeah. <laughs> do, do you guys belong to critique groups? I do actually. Yeah. I belong to an in-person critique group, but I've been through a lot of them. I think this is like my fifth one, but it's a very good one. A lot of, you know, trad published authors that do it as a career. So I find it helpful. Yeah. I feel like I, I've always had a hard time finding a critique, a critique group that was worthwhile. And, and that's harsh. Uh, it's pretty harsh for me to say it this way, but the, the fact is it's, it's hard to connect with, with other authors who maybe aren't operating at the level you're operating at. Um, but then again, you know, I, I do feel an obligation to kind of help raise people up. I just, every critique group I ever got into was really just, would you read my book and, and tell me how great it is? And so I, I, I never resonated with that. Had a hard time with it. I, I found that writers tend to give very different feedback than than readers do. Um, and, you know, yeah. it's, it's funny because I just I sent out beta copies of my latest book and the two of you were, were beta readers on it. Um, and four of my beta readers were just readers, you know, like they just read a lot of thrillers. Um, and, and like I got different feedback from those two different groups. And like to give the, the audience here an example, there's one scene in particular towards the end of the book where I had to get somebody out of a pair of handcuffs. Um, you know, so I gave the guy a dislocated thumb and basically let him just, you know, do that, get out of the handcuffs and move on with the story. None of the readers flagged that as an issue, but the two of you honed right in on it and said, you know, this, this works, but seed it in somewhere earlier, you know, which is what I ended up doing because it's an, e an easy enough fix. But, you know, that, that's the kind of thing I'm getting at. Like, you know, readers and writers tend to, to catch different things. I was trying so hard to read that like a reader. I was like, shut that writer brain off. I guess we just can't do it. I know. <laughs> well, I think you get jaded, right? I felt bad after I was done because I kept making like jokes and stuff in the, uh, in the copy. So I hope those were taken... <laughs> For what they were. And I'd make suggestions as, as if you had all the time in the world to go back and rewrite 
<laughs> this particular my, part of the book. My general rules, like I, I flip, I had, I think nine different copies of this book were all on my desk at the same time. And I basically flip everybody to the same page. And if I see multiple people commenting on the same thing, then I address it. If I don't, you know, I, I tend to gloss over it. Um, you know, you guys caught a lot of typos that the readers don't catch either. And, you know, I think in my note, I said not to bother because a copy editor is going to go through it. And I think just as writers, it's your general nature to say, hey, a comma should go here. Um, but yeah, just yeah. interesting how the, the different groups, but I get what you're saying, Kevin, as far as the, the feedback, you know, like it's you know, a lot of times I, I've seen writers just go in circles, you know, because they'll, they'll turn in what's yeah. a perfectly good manuscript and this critique group will just tear it apart. Like they, sometimes they, they feel like they have to find something wrong. Um, yeah. or, or, you know, or they jump on a bandwagon. One person points out one problem and then four other people chime in with the same issue. And yeah, so take it for what it's worth. But a hang up I've had is that I've, so my recent experience, I've had people uh, read some things from me. Uh, JD, you read something, one of my older pieces, and you had really good feedback on that. And then it was what was interesting to me is I handed something I wrote recently to someone, and they gave me the opposite feedback. And it and I think you're both right, but and, and maybe it's just because of the distance between those two pieces but it's that's uh, a problem for me sometimes because if i'm getting feedback from multiple people and it's contradictory I, like i am not capable of determining who's right or who's wrong <laughs> and which direction i should actually go that's that's the problem i always have with it <laughs> yeah like i find when i use it with with writers reading i want it as alpha feedback not beta feedback when there's something i'm pitching maybe an outline or some developmental help that i'm looking for or some early chapters when i'm not quite sure what i want to do um and then when i have four of them saying the same thing independently i know that that's a problem the what is always right the how to fix it is almost never right so <laughs> you know <laughs> there was a comment that uh we started talking at one point in the interview about um there's two things really and one was about villains and I, I am interested in how you guys treat villain villains uh the that notion that he kind of suggested that there's a there's an element of the villain should be should in some way be right, which I am fascinated by because I, I I watched this whole series of things critiquing the Marvel movies and they were pointing out that in almost every Marvel movie the villain has a point, it like has a good point. Uh, they, their methods are abhorrent, but the actual the actual thing that they're homing in on is is in some ways right. Like, how do you guys treat villains? I mean, personally, I, I feel, I try to treat it like real life. You know, like there is no black or white. Yeah. There is no good or evil. Everybody on this planet is operating somewhere in that gray area, somewhere in between. Um, I, I try to go out of my way and like in Fourth Monkey, I, I did this, but like I think people closed the cover on the Fourth Monkey and they actually feel bad for my bad guy. Like they, they like that's the one that they actually care about in the end. And like, that's kind of my goal when I write some of these, you know, Caller's Game is the same thing. This guy does some horrendous stuff throughout the book. But at the end, you're, you know, you basically agree, like, I get why he did it, you know? And, and yeah. I think you kind of need to do that. If you're, if your villain is just sitting there tweaking his, his mustache and just, you know, flat out a bad guy, you know, like from like an old 19, you know, 18 cartoon or something, then, you know, it's, you, you've got a problem. You, yeah. they, they should reflect real life. Yeah, I agree with that. Villains are the heroes of their own story, right? So they have to be yeah. justified in what they're doing and have a good reason. And you have to get your your readers to at least understand, uh, you know, why they're doing that, even if they wouldn't make the same decision. I read something years back when I was when I was a kid uh, about Hitler. You know, like Hitler was married. 
you know, so somebody loved the guy um, and he was a painter. Like ultimately, like that's what he wanted to be. So like the guy had hobbies and it's like, these are things you don't really hear about anymore. Um, you know, so even somebody as evil, as crazy as that, you know, that had, had a couple of redeeming qualities going on. Everybody talks about the genocide, but nobody ever talks about the paintings. <laughs> the paintings. Um, <laughs> I think an exercise I'm going to try, uh, I heard someone talk about this at one point, was pick a crucial scene uh, that involves your villain and, and, the, and the hero and rewrite the scene from the point of view of the villain to get their perspective uh, and get in their head, like get, get their actual thoughts. Um, not necessarily that you're going to publish that, that scene in that book, but I think that's, a, that's probably a decent exercise to, to practice to get into that mindset. Yes, sir. Um, well, toward the end, we talked about, uh, Jim and I talked about um, prologues. And his, that was his advice, you know, uh, his, his sort of the rule to break, basically. And I actually include prologues in only one series that I write, which is the, the, the archaeological thrillers. I always include a prologue, but I treat it like a cold open from a television series. And I've taken some criticism for that um, from people over the years. But uh, that was always when I started doing it, that was my way of quickly introducing all the elements that were going to be different so that I could get back to the bottle that, uh, that Kotler and, and Denzel are in and tell that, that story. Um, so I'm curious what you guys think of prologues. The, the prologue is dead. Um, <laughs> to a certain extent. So if you talk, if you talk to an editor, most of them will tell you if they see a prologue in a book, the first thought in their head is let's figure out how to get rid of this and, and tell this yeah. part in, a, in another way. Um, a lot of that is genre specific, um, you know, sci-fi, you know, in a lot of ways still needs a prologue to, to set, you know, because you're building a world, you're building so much stuff. Um, you know, that, that said in the thriller world, there's different ways to do it. Like the book that I'm working on right now, I, I basically created a prologue, but it's in the form of a, a transcript from a police officer walking a crime scene. It's like the written oh. transcript of his audio, um, from four years ago, you know, so it's, it's only two pages or so long, but it, but it sets all of the scene and it, it's, it's a prologue for sure. It's just, it's done in a different way that, you know, people haven't seen, at least not on a regular yeah. basis. So I, I shoot for that. Just call it chapter one. Nobody will know. But uh, yeah. I think, you know, <laughs> I think prologues are, if they're necessary, they're necessary. I'm curious, do you write your prologues first? Are they the first thing you write or the last thing you write? I'm a very chronological writer. I, I start at the beginning and I write to the end. And so, yeah, the prologue in those books, the prologue is the very first thing I write. Uh, it sets up the problem, you know, my, my reasoning on this is, uh, like I said, it's like a cold open from like a detective show or cop show or something, you know, um, it doesn't usually involve the characters that everyone knows. My reasoning is that people are coming in. Most people are coming in having already read some of the other books, you know? And so this is a, a way to kind of drop them in the action, um, and, and start from the, you know, the actual, the actual impetus of the story. But yeah, I get it. I mean, I, I understand where JD's coming from, you know, that this isn't something I, and in fact, I don't do it in any of my other books, only in that one series, but I established it in the very first one. And so it's kind of the rhythm of that series. 
So yeah, if it works for the it. series, it's, it's, it's worthwhile. I mean, one of the things that I used to have to do as a book doctor is, you know, I would take the prologue. Um, and a lot of times it's very important information. It's stuff that needs to be communicated and that's why it's there in the first place. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I usually found a way to take it, chop it up, you know, take this paragraph and seed it in somewhere else in the story, you know, treat it as a flashback or, you know, a quick little reference back or something, find, find some other way to tell that information. Um, basically when, whenever I, I look at any type of book, if I have to do an edit on it, I try to figure out where the action starts. You know, where's where's the hook for the reader? What you know, where do we really want to start this book? Um, and most of the time, it's chapter two, it's chapter three, it's somewhere a little further on than where the author thought it would need it needed to be. Um, but again, at the same time, a lot of that information that came first needs to be told, just not necessarily in that order. So I try to find a more interesting way to do it to keep the pacing going. Yeah, yeah, That's nice, fair. right? Awesome. So JD, who's up next week? Next week, we've got Daniel Suarez coming on. He's the New York Times bestselling author of numerous titles, including one of my personal favorites called Demon. Um, his latest is called Critical Mass, and it releases on January 31st. Great. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.